As was already mentioned, we again have been blessed with the opportunity to assemble this Sunday afternoon and to do so in such a way that as the Scripture set before us, we can rest assured of the pleasing character to the God of heaven and the great blessing that shall be ours from the opportunity we have to worship tonight. We are thankful for the presence of each and every individual, and certainly as we come to our fourth installment on our series on the book of Isaiah, we will find ourselves encouraged, and we'll find ourselves in a position to appreciate better certain features and aspects of this wonderful Old Testament book of prophecy. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, be turning to that book of Isaiah, and in particular tonight we'll be in that set of chapters that shall be roughly around chapters 14, but also we'll start in chapter 13 in just a minute. This opening slide is one that will basically bring us to a point of beginning for this evening, And I'll get Greg to help me turn those slides tonight. Thank you. With that book of Isaiah, we find already that a number of things about the book have been very challenging on the one hand, but also very comforting on another. Because the book of Isaiah is often called the, the, messianic, the book by the Messianic prophet, and that reminds us that so many things about Jesus are in this book. Prophecies about His life, prophecies about the work of His life, prophecies about the kingdom. And yet tonight, as we look at some other aspects of chapters 13 and following, we shall find even in them certain aspects that will remind us not only of the work of heaven, but the blessing in it for, for you and for me. In chapter number 12, for example, though we'll not devote a great deal of attention to it, it's a very short chapter, but one that highlights a sweet aspect of blessing based on God's provision of salvation for us. Isn't it amazing that even in the days long before Christ came, even amongst the people of Israel, there was an appreciation of what God was doing for them and what He certainly would accomplish in the future. You and I are so much more blessed in that regard than they were. Surely, as verse number 5 would say it in that chapter, Sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. As you and I think about the excellency of the Lord and that which He's done, let's use it now to springboard to a few topics that shall be of benefit to us. And we'll start in chapter 13. I entitled this opening slide, One That Relates to Figurative Language. Isn't it true that sometimes in the Word of God one encounters various passages which, if taken literally, can lead not only to problems, but in fact will lead to contradictions to other passages? May I suggest to you that there is at least a passage in this chapter which will speak volumes in light of shedding some light on some things found in the New Testament. Let's develop what those are. First of all, as you and I continue our study of Isaiah, you may remember that one of the things contained so powerfully in this book are references to the nations and God's dealings among them, and quite often the judgments that were cast upon them. Among the things we see in this chapter, note verse number 1, "...the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see." And so much of this chapter will be devoted to a discussion of the nation of Babylon and God's judgment upon them for their cruelty and their wickedness and their failure to carry out the message and the work that God would have asked and wished them to do. 
At this point, though, there's aspects of that which certainly are somewhat challenging. Let me develop a few of them at the beginning of this slide. It begins in verses 1 to 5 of this same chapter. In this chapter, God, in fact, marshals His forces. He calls them and numbers them and commands them to wage war on Babylon. But did you notice in that description, these nations, whoever they may be that war against Babylon, are called God's servants. They are referred to specifically as having been called by God, given their orders by Him, and given their directive specifically to battle against Babylon. The aspects of that that are particularly of interesting, at this point in history, Babylon had not yet reached the height of her ascendancy. Babylon had not yet reached the greatness of her particulars because after all, you may recall Assyria would first rise to prominence and they were the immediate threat to God's people. Babylon was yet into the future and yet through the lens of prophecy, Isaiah could look down the stream of time by the deliverance of God and rest assured that even once Babylon did rise to prominence, she would be judged by the God of heaven. And she would in fact find herself lacking because of what she had failed to do. As often as you and I ponder thoughts like that, doesn't it remind us again how well the future is not hidden from God? Although the future certainly is hidden from you and me, no mortal man can look down the stream of decades or centuries as would have been the case here. And to know in certainty what would have happened nonetheless because God revealed it to Isaiah, He could. That's fascinating. But may I suggest another thing about that was this. You and I know from other passages in Scripture how great Babylon was going to, to in fact, become. In Daniel 2.36, Babylon was described as a nation of gold. And you and I remember, of course, Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. It was a refined nation in terms of capacity and capability, and yet she was going to be crushed, she would be judged, and the enemies reared against her would be the very ones that God would send. I use all of that as an introduction to this figurative language that's now about to come before us. Given now that we know that this is a description of Babylon, may I read to you on this same chapter beginning in verse number 9. Isaiah 13 beginning in verse number 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the, e and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible." I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man after the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. My suspicion is that portions of that reading that I just read may sound familiar. Not because you heard them here, but because they're in the New Testament too. Hold your finger here and turn with me to Matthew 24. 
when Jesus made several statements in that interesting and rather powerful Matthew chapter 24, allow me, allow me to read to you, beginning in verse 29 of that chapter. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. As you and I pause now, that's the idea that I wished for you and me to consider with some care, again, for, for at least a moment. As we and I have noted before, Matthew chapter 24 might well be called the single most misunderstood chapter in all the Bible because it's taken far from its context and used to assert and declare things which in context it never did nor never shall. In fact, as you and I might note, when those apostles came before the Master and asked Him the questions of Matthew 24, 3, they said, When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They ask Jesus, you see, more than one question. First, they ask Him about the destruction of Jerusalem. When shall these things be? And the Lord had just foretold the absolute desolation of that temple in Jerusalem. And they ask, when will this happen? When will these things be? But then they ask a second question. What about your coming and the end of the world? Clearly two different questions. In this instance, as the Lord proceeded to answer them in the order that they asked it, He answered the first one first. And so the first part of Matthew 24 is an extended discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem. And thus it's completely erroneous to take anything out of that section and try to use it to refer to the end of time. It doesn't refer to the end of time. It has nothing to do with it. What it does have to do with is what happened in A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed. You might appreciate in Matthew 24, verses 34 and 35, is the transition from the answer to the first question to the answer to the second one. Jesus plainly said in verse 34, All these things will come to pass in this generation. He clearly said it. Now would you go back and notice verse 29, the verse I just read is in the first section. The vast majority of the religious world, if they give any interest in matters like this, suppose that verse 29 refers to the end of time. It doesn't. It never did. And now you and I appreciate the thrust that the Lord was making, the idea He was presenting. It's the same one Isaiah was presenting when He made the reference to the text we just noted in Isaiah 13. There Isaiah pointed out, by virtue of God's deliverance to him. When Babylon is destroyed, when the enemies overcome her, it will be as earth-shattering an event, as if the stars were to fall from heaven, as if the moon were to not give her light, as if the sun, you see, were to be darkened. It would be an earth-shattering set of events. Not that the moon literally would cease to shine. Not that the stars literally would fall out of heaven. 
it was a figurative way of describing an overwhelming set of events that was going to be the case when finally Babylon was destroyed. Jesus said, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to be just like that. Oh, it'll not be true that the stars are literally going to fall. That's not what he's saying. And it's not literally going to be true that the moon's going to cease to shine. But it's going to be such an earth-shattering event. It will be such an overwhelming thing to you and your people that it shall be as if, proverbially, that kind of thing could be described. That's what the Lord was saying. Thus, may we never take that literally. That text in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30 but with that in mind, let's you and I perhaps close this slide and notice that quite often in literature, exaggeration is used to help highlight the greatness of an event. And so on this next slide, could invite you to point out, as I have invited us to notice in that text in Matthew 24, that's the very idea behind that beautiful passage. But not only does Isaiah remind us of these things, it's also true that we could give thought to yet another lesson drawn from some of the character of these matters. And so, as we turn the slide to our next consideration, we appreciate the following. Since Babylon is also a part of this one, I wanted you to observe it while we were in the midst of chapter 13. In fact, would you note verse 17 of this same chapter? And something, again, rather remarkable is noted for you and me. Verse 17 reads as follows, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, the them is Babylon, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. At this point, you and I, as we've noted earlier, can easily see that Babylon was yet on the distant screen of the planet Earth. They had not risen to prominence. They were not yet great in terms of matters like that. And yet we're already asking, God, who will it be that shall finally rise to a sufficient prominence to defeat them? We learn in verse 17 who it, be, who it would be. At this point in time, the Median Empire was nowhere on the screen of human affairs. And God called them by name. I hope you and I are impressed with how God controls the ultimate affairs that take place on this earth. Kingdoms rise and fall only as it is His will that they shall do it. Kingdoms occupy the space and the place on the scope of matters, but only so long as the God of heaven wills it to be so. As God, of course, looked through the stream of time, He here called the name of the empire that would finally defeat Babylon. On that slide, a few more comments about that might be this. Isn't it then a fascinating matter? When you and I arrive at Daniel chapter 5 and observe that by then the time has come that Babylon has grown to ascendancy, and we read about a king of the Median Empire whose name was Darius. We read much about him in Daniel chapter 5, and in his place, we find the one, we find the empire who ultimately crushed the Babylonians. Now, that all happened in 539 B.C. Would you please take note of the fact that was almost 275 years into the future from when Isaiah wrote this. A long, long time. 
the impressiveness of the Bible never ceases to be remarkable. Time is no limitation to God. Time is no restriction whatsoever to Him. Is it any wonder in Isaiah 46, which we shall find here a few lessons from now, that God Himself will declare, I know the ending from the beginning. There is nothing concealed from Him. In 2 Peter 3.8, we read there that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. One of the fantastic observations then that comes is the recognition of the detail that is often found in the prophetical statements in the Word of God. People are called by name. Nations are called by name, though at the time they barely, if even, existed at all. For that reason, I chose to mention you one more. Some would see this as one of the single most impressive non-Messiah-related prophecies in all the book of Isaiah. It shall be found in Isaiah 45, starting in verse 1. For there, you and I might now note this. With nations rising, first was going to come Assyria, then was going to come Babylon, at this point, the God of heaven mentions by name a man named Cyrus. Spell C-Y-R-U-S. Cyrus. Now that probably was not the most common ancient name, I freely confess. And yet by name that man was called. And God said, here's the name of the man that will be the leader, the ruler, the monarch of that empire that shall ultimately crush the great nation the nation of Babylon. And so Cyrus, as you and I turn the page and come to books like Ezra, we find sure enough, by name, the man is identified. But can you and I still not be impressed with how the Bible points out to us a man couldn't have written it. A man wouldn't have known that far into the future the name of the person that was going to be involved in that kind of work. As you and I close this slide, and turn our attention to the next one. We come to chapter 14. Brother Cale read from this chapter just a few minutes ago, and in particular it was verse number 12 that he read in our hearing. I chose this particular passage as a portion of the lesson tonight, not because it's particularly confusing, but because of the fact that now for a number of centuries, it has unfortunately served as the background for a misusage of a name. Let's see what the name was. Allow me to read it again in the King James Version of the Word of God. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? My suspicion is that if you were to just ask the typical person who Lucifer in the Bible refers to, almost without exception, they tell you the devil. But you know, that's not right. It was never that way. The only place in the Bible where that word Lucifer occurs is the one you and I just noted. Now, upon reading it, notice again, there is a reference apparently in it to a being that's fallen from heaven. Furthermore, a being that's called the son of the morning. Furthermore, a being who is identified as, How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? 
Now, but what I've just said, you now have the appreciation. The preacher is saying that's not the devil. Who is it? Well, let's begin like this. How did anybody ever make the claim that that's the devil? I don't know when that first started in history, but this much I do know. If you turn back the clock to the year 1667, there's a rather famous English poet who wrote, to this day, a rather well-known literary piece. It's called Paradise Lost. Sometimes students are still asked to read it, study it, or at least make observation of it in, in high school classes. John Milton was the name of the poet. And in that poem, Milton said that Lucifer refers to the devil. I doubt he originated the idea. I feel sure he took it from Isaiah 14, 12. But might you and I take note that it is not referring to the devil. You and I have often appreciated the fact that a context has to assist us in determining what is under consideration and what is it that's under the, the, the matter of the topic at hand. It's not hard to understand what this is referring to. In fact, you and I began in chapter 13 noticing that Babylon was under extended description. Extended discussion. So look back up to verse 4 of Isaiah 14, just a few verses prior to our present passage. That thou shalt take up this proverb against who? The king of Babylon. And say, How hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. And you can begin to read as verse by verse passes. He's talking about the king of Babylon. Lucifer is a reference to the king of Babylon. It is not the devil. It is not Satan. It is to the king of Babylon. And the inspired writer is continuing to describe the destruction of and that scene of events wherein the God of heaven would bring the desolation of Babylon. Lucifer is used as a figurative description of the king of Babylon. In fact, as you notice in some of the passages that surround this one, Allow me to read verse number 13, for example. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now that you and I have an appreciation that this is a reference to the king of Babylon, would you transition forward in your thinking to the book of Daniel? You might remember with me that in that book is set before us the claims of none other than Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This king who himself exalted himself so greatly upon earth that in Daniel chapter 4 he received a dream. In that dream, the mighty tree was cut. The stump was left, and God told him, Until you learn that the God of heaven rules in the kingdoms of men, you're going to live like an animal. And he did it for seven years. The mighty had, had in fact fallen, just as Isaiah had said it would be a couple of hundred years earlier. Not only that, look at verse 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? 
during that seven-year period he was living in that way, don't you suppose many looked upon him? Is that the one that terrorized nations? Is that the one that caused kingdoms to shake in fear when he himself was living like an animal? Isaiah said those kind of matters were going to be a part of their thinking. Maybe it is in light of those things. Might you and I then appreciate yet another issue has been resolved in our understanding. Lucifer is not a reference to the devil. It's a reference to the king of Babylon. Perhaps one final thing as you appreciate the closing part of that slide with me is how that the arrogancy which Nebuchadnezzar felt was an arrogancy that came tumbling down under the principle that even Jesus himself would mention in Luke 14. He that exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Luke 14, verses 11 and 12. As you and I close this slide and turn our attention to yet another, we then give some thought to a section of Scripture which I've called the burdens. I call it that because there have been a number of others who have done the same. As you read through the book of Isaiah, you will find, beginning in chapter 13 and continuing for 11 chapters, a set of chapters that makes reference to the burdens placed upon the nations. The burdens on the nations. For your consideration, I've listed a number of them for you. In fact, I've tried to list directly all of them in which the language burden directly appears. And so in Isaiah 13, 1, the burden of Babylon. In Isaiah 15, 1, the burden of Moab. In Isaiah 17, 1, the burden of Damascus. In Isaiah 19, 1, the burden of Egypt. In Isaiah 21, 1, the burden of the desert of the sea. In Isaiah 21, 11, the burden of Duma. In Isaiah 21, 13, the burden of Arabia. In Isaiah 22.1, the burden of the Valley of Vision. In Isaiah 23.1, the burden of Tyre. At this point, it's easy to see this repetitive character of the word burden used to refer to each one of them. Several observations. What is this burden identifying? And what is the characteristic of it? In essence, what's the meaning? It isn't difficult upon reading them to appreciate that in these sections of Scripture, though the prophet called it a burden, it's really the judgment of God upon these peoples, upon these nations, and sometimes upon their kings in particular, because of the choices that they made and the lifestyle they promoted. Among that list, you might perhaps wonder at first about Duma. That might be a nation you're, you and I are unfamiliar with, at least by that name. Be, be assured, that's nothing but Edom. That's just another biblical way to refer to Edom. So the descendants of Esau, they will be a strong part, you see, of not only some of the later sections in Isaiah, but Jeremiah will have a lot to say about the Edomites when we come to Jeremiah chapters 49 and 50, at least for right now. Would you notice in the midst of all that discussion, in Isaiah 14 is a reference to Palestine. Now those, of course, were the people that should have been the people of God. They were not exempt from the judgment of God either. All of these nations, 
And here's a point that seems to me you and I must embed strongly in our thinking. Some might be quick to say, but the Moabites or the Egyptians or the Edomites, they were never God's chosen people. They weren't the ones that were given the law of Moses. They weren't given the Ten Commandments. Those people were never under those laws. So the question might be asked, why did God judge them then? Why did God declare, I will pour upon you the judgment from heaven and bring to desolation the peoples connected with these kinds of behaviors? Might we appreciate strongly. There has never been a single human being living on earth that was not subject to the laws of the God of heaven. Not a one. Now, those that were Jews, they were subject to that law of Moses that God gave them. But all the other peoples upon earth, call them heathens if you like, or call them again by other designations such as Gentiles, God still had behaviors which He expected of them. Isn't it true that often in the Old Testament, we find that God sent prophets to some of those nations to, to warn them about their impending doom if they didn't repent. Perhaps case in point was the people of Nineveh. Do you recall the book of Jonah? Here was a person who was a prophet in the land of Israel. Jonah, you go to Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, and you cry against it, for their cries come up before me, Jonah 1, verses 2 and 3. So someone might quickly say, well, those people aren't Hebrews. They don't have a law of God. That's not right. They lived beneath the patriarchal law in such a way that they were expected of God to have behaviors and conducts and things characteristic of what was morally right. And when they failed, they met the judgment of God just as surely as the Hebrews did. There's never been a person on earth not subject to the God of heaven and the laws which He has set forth. And so, whether it be the Ninevites, the Egyptians, the Edomites, or others, we shall find often the judgment of God proclaimed on them for their failures in one way or another. Sometimes it would seem that there's a mistaken idea concerning the Old Testament in that regard. That it's almost as if God didn't care about any of the other nations besides Israel. Well, it's true that Israel was His chosen people, but He did have expectations of those others. And in fact, sometimes sent prophets to them to warn them and encourage them, and sometimes to exhort them. As you and I close that particular slide tonight, doesn't it remind us of Acts 17, verses 30 and 31? When even in the heart of the New Testament, Paul could stand there in that beautiful city of Athens and make this statement. The times of this ignorance is such that God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. All men everywhere have to repent. And so today, though there are hundreds and hundreds of nations upon this planet, Every single person needs the gospel. Every single person needs the saving message of the Christ. And it's the same New Testament for each and every one of us. There's not some specialized people somewhere who aren't subject to God this way. All of us are subject to God in exactly that same way. On this conclusion slide, 
we somewhat summarize, at least in brief, in brevity, some of the matters we have considered tonight. The book of Isaiah is a very thrilling book, and often it touches and brings to our mind some passages in the New Testament. Frequently, Matthew will quote from the book of Isaiah, for example, and in that light, we find the strength of these messages for the people of their day often still bears a strong element in learning for you and me even in our day. May you and I benefit much from our continuing study of Isaiah. And as we come to some of the next sections of the book, we shall again find that Paul, for example, will have much to remind us about as we come to chapters like 27 and 28. Tonight, as we close this lesson, it might be that someone in this assembly has perhaps upon reflection of life realized that if the God of heaven can judge nations, He knows very well about my life personally and yours. Am I living correctly? Are you? As those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, to borrow the words of Revelation seven fourteen, if our life, if we have lived openly in a way that has brought shame and disgrace and reproach upon the name of the Christ, aren't we thankful He'll forgive us? But we do have to repent. And we do need to make confession of it. And tonight, if we could assist you in that regard and offer prayer unto God for things known publicly like that, it'd be our honor. It would be our genuine privilege to assist you in that way. However, if you would wish to become a Christian and have all your sins from your birth onward, whatever they may be that you have done in a way that's inconsistent with God's will, you realize He'll forgive that too. Believe in the Lord and repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance in that regard, we would use this opportunity during the time we sing this song as a time to encourage and invite. And we'll do that right now while together we stand and sing.